the quill! In this episode, we spend some time with mechanical engineering professor and entrepreneur Sanjay Sarma, right before he boards a plane. Most recently, Sanjay was MIT's Vice President of Open Learning, with a decade of service running MIT's digital learning and education initiatives. Think MITx, the Integrated Learning Initiative, JWell, OpenCourseWare, the list goes on and on. Sanjay and I talk about his book, Grasp, Teaching and Learning, MIT, and his new adventures as President and CEO of the Asia School of Business in Malaysia. We also get to the bottom of a little incident in a campus parking garage. Menang lomba Lock the Quill Global Challenge Februari ini dari Tangerang, Indonesia. Selamat, John. Terima kasih sudah mendengarkan podcast ini. You got that, Scott? Oh, yeah. I got all of it. <laughs> Congratulations to John of Tangerang, Indonesia. He's the winner of February's Lock the Quill Global Challenge. Tough to get further away than Indonesia. It's Yeah, that's far, Scott. Oh, yeah. Um, so that's 9,934 miles, 15,987 kilometers, or 9,394,281 smoots. We need to come up with a unit of measurement here at Papalato. Any uh, yeah, proposals? Uh, a quill. What a else quill. could we use? We could do it. Lay it all across the Hobbit Bridge, mark it all down, and become famous. Like More famous than we already are. Way more famous than we already are. <laughs> I think that'll send us over the top. So we start fresh for March and email us your address to lockthequill at mit.edu to enter. And that music? It's from MIT. You think we're just a bunch of science nerds, didn't you? The piece is Tire Fire, composed by MIT's Evan Zaporin, director of the Center for Art, Science, and Technology, with our music, theater, and arts department. It's performed by Gamelan Galactica, an MIT-based gamelan of student, staff, and community. I think it's awesome. I'm I loving love the music. Yeah, I'm totally with Absolutely, you. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's good driving music. Yeah, I go ripping down M Drive, you know, this blasting. I'm out the window, right? Nice summer day. So who's on uh, this episode, Danny? <laughs> Thanks, Scott. <laughs> I'm still rocking out to the music. <laughs> uh, we've got Sanjay Sarma. He's taken leave from MIT to be president and CEO of the Asia School of Business in Malaysia, and he boards a plane tomorrow. Oh, I know Sanjay. Yeah, good luck. Congratulations to him. Isn't he the guy that backed into Billy's car? I don't know. <laughs> we'll investigate. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. You're welcome, Danny. In your book, Grasp, The Science Transforming How We Learn, you write about the education system we have now and how it's predominantly shaped by the philosophies of Edward Thorndike and, and Lewis Terman. Yeah, Terman, yeah. You then compare and contrast them to, say, John Dewey and Maria Montessori. Can you talk about their different approaches? Yeah, look, I mean, the summary is this. First of all, a model that we need to understand is our ability to learn comes from being a child. Even as adults, that's our instinct. Cats don't learn. Human beings do. Cats don't teach. Well, they sort of do, but not in, in the way that human beings teach. 
And it's an evolutionary trade-off, which is we're not grown up until you're in your, in your teens. But you can adapt from anything to anything from the Sahara to the North Pole, right? Or to the Arctic. We are a very adaptable species. So if you take childhood as a model for learning, that ain't what college or high school is today. Our model for learning today is fundamentally flawed. We assume that the professor has a pen and the student's brain is a sheet of paper. You just write and declare victory. And that's not right. It's actually, you should think of it as the learner, adult or child, formulating a model of the world, like a tree growing. You have to give it sunshine when the child or the tree wants it, not when it's convenient for you, damn it. You give it, you know, nitrogen or potassium when it needs it. You can give it a lifetime supply of water and sunlight and nitrogen and potassium on day one and declare victory. And so what we have is that is the fundamental fallacy. And the Thorndikes of the world, what Thorndike digged was, he didn't understand the science completely. It's sort of premature, right? And he said, oh, you know, human beings, were, we're just like animals. You just need to train them. You know, it's not just Thorndike. It's also not just Terman. It's also people like Pavlov, right? Which is you just condition. That was their thought of what learning is. And that's not correct. They paved the way for what is called scientific racism. Well, sure. Right. Yeah. Because Eugenics and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, eugenics came from Galton, who was a cousin of Darwin. I don't think he meant it that way, but I don't know if he was a... It was used in that capacity. But yeah, and what these guys did was they also said that the brains of some ethnicities were less prepared than the brains of others. This continued all the way to the 70s, by the way. And so if you look at college and school today, it is based on the pseudo-scientific views of, not pseudo, uh, half-baked scientific views of Thorndike. Dewey understood <laughs> about the emergent properties of the brain. Maria Montessori understood, right? MIT. John Barton Rogers understood it, actually. It's very core to our values. And it was about letting the person grow and giving them what they need and creating a system that wraps around them rather than wrapping them, you know, splaying them around the wheel of education. So that's the, that's the basic essence. And then, of course, the cognitive psychology and the brain science we're learning all backs it up. In your book, you call a Thorndike approach an inside-out model versus the outside-in model of Dewey. That's right. So the inside-out model is, oh, we'll figure out how things work at a low level. The reductionist. The reductionist. And therefore, we should be able to predict everything about the outside world, right? About how they behave, their emotions, their logic, their interests, their idiosyncrasies. You know, it's very interesting. A cat has about 250 million neurons. I'm, I'm sorry for cat lovers. Dogs have a, about 500 million neurons. Human beings have 86 billion neurons. Mm. Somewhere between 500 million neurons and 86 billion neurons, Shakespeare happens. Martin Luther King happens. Da Vinci happens, right? The pyramids happen. The Taj Mahal happens, right? I mean... Do you think you can reduce it to neurons? This is a very different it's conversation. A, it's, I, I, uh, I've got to believe that. And that's why, by the way, I'm not too impressed with ChatGPT, despite all the explanations of, uh, you know, people are like, oh my God, sentient. That's not sentient. Try and convince, you know, I can convince, you can convince me of something, right? We've done that over the years. You can't convince ChatGPT of anything, <laughs> right? Or persuade or change its mind. There's no mind. No. Right? So you know, can it be done with neurons? I, I believe that it's neurons. Maybe there's something else, but I think, I think it's neurons. Well, we'll find out maybe one day. Yeah. I know that a lot of people are talking about consciousness. Yeah. I don't oh. think we figured out consciousness. I think no. it's a very fundamental question. You seem to be promoting the outside-in Dewey model. 
Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And I'm wondering how you reconcile the challenges of scale with digital learning or open education and the intense interaction that's required with a Dewey model. So that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. You know, um, I said this morning and uh, many great thinkers have said, I was talking to the uh, MIT Sloan faculty member, amazing person, Nelson Repenning. He was also saying to me that when you have an or and you change it to an and, that's when a revolution happens. So we always said scale versus quality. Scale or quality, pick one. You can have not both, but one. Well, you can do scale and quality up to point, actually, and that's a revolution. This is not the first time this has happened. When uh, American auto companies were making cars, right, and before the Japanese showed up, it was, you could either make them expensive, or they would, you know, you could have have cost, or you could have quality. You couldn't have both. Good, and the sure. Japanese gave us both. And that's the lean revolution. So I think education is on the cusp of a revolution. The way you create the end is you use the technology not to replace the teacher, but to enrich the teacher. So a 90-minute lecture is 90 minutes squandered. In-person time squandered, right? Mm. And uh, nature confiscated in person with COVID. And we clawed it back. Do we really want to squander those 90-minute lectures with the professor talking and the students dozing off or looking at Instagram? Right? So it turns out a 90-minute lecture is a 20-minute video. And now you've released, uh, you know, one hour and 10 minutes of pure groups, discussion, coaching, uh, motivation. You're talking about the flipped classroom. Yeah, it's a flipped classroom. It's basically what it is. Uh, it is fundamentally, you know, if you walk down the infinite corridor, the main, main group of buildings at MIT, all the ceilings are very high. And the reason is when we moved, when MIT moved from across the river, uh, based on a gift from, uh, from George Eastman, an anonymous gift, which is now valued about $350 million, and this building was built, we made all, they made, I wasn't there, you weren't there, the ceiling's very high. And the reason was the workshops were supposed to be the classrooms. And now if you walk through the infinite corridor, it's a bunch of offices. But the model was very different back then, was it not? I mean, we were founded as part of land-grant school with emphasis on the mechanical arts and agriculture. Uh, that meant metallurgy, steam power, heavy industry. We just needed those uh, large studio spaces. And I think we regressed. What happened was that it was, um, it was mechanical arts, right? And we started uh, rightly injecting science into the technology and then injecting math into the science and in the abstract. But then we, at some point, we lost the plot and the mind and hand became separated and the hand got forgotten and those rooms became lecture halls. And the truth is in the middle. Of course, you want to get the abstract stuff. But the science shows us, and you know, we talk about it in the book, embodied cognition. It's called embodied cognition. When you do something with your hand, the motor cortex is woken up. And when the motor cortex is woken up, you learn better. So mind and hand actually do need to come together. And here we are in building 35, where you got your PhD, right? Yeah, yeah. All those years ago. And uh, the machine shop is in the heart of building 35, right? You can smell the, the, uh, the coolant, you know, you can smell the burnt chips, right? And, um, and it turns out that... Uh, that's because Dan runs his machines too fast. That's true, actually. He should probably be using more coolant. <laughs> but I think that uh, if you can do the theory and then you apply it, it's such a beautiful formula and the science backs it up. I mean, just imagine if you learned cycling through lectures. 
only lectures. Of course, you're going to have to get on a bike at some point. You say that it's imperative that we shed the myth that serious learning must be difficult and find ways to make instruction far more cognitively user-friendly. You also describe how you cringe a little at the display and status center of the water fountain and the fire hose. I, I get it. But can you differentiate the difficulties associated with systemic difficulties and difficulties associated with the challenges of learning? That's Because I, I think learning ought to be hard. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, um, there are desirable difficulties. The, um, Bjorks, the famous scientist in uh, UCLA, talks about it. And there's undesirable or what I call idiotic difficulties. All right? Idiotic difficulties, uh, when you don't explain those things properly and the student has no idea what you talked about. Mm. Or you go so fast that they have no idea what you talked about. Well, that should not be the case. Sure. Right? <laughs> desirable difficulties is, for example, if I tell you how to invert a matrix or if I tell you how to uh, you know, solve a differential equation and you're doing it, you're doing it sort of right, but you're missing something and you're struggling to, exp to explain to yourself what you got wrong and then you get that aha and then you sort of figure it out. That's desirable difficulties. Undesirable difficulties is you learn about, you're trying to solve a differential equation, but no one told you why it's useful, why it matters, right? And it was done so rapidly that you're just mechanically going through it. So you have to focus the learning on the desirable difficulties. And that actually turns out the difficulty actually helps you. It's like exercise, you know? Yeah, this reminds me of the psychologist Csikszentmihalyi. Yeah. Right, all about flow. And reaching the state of flow when we have the greatest kind of opportunity for growth, spiritual, intellectual, athletic, whatever, generally will occur when the challenge is high and requires all of our faculties. That's right. So Sikshen Mihaili, I had to practice to pronounce that amazing name. <laughs> uh, and you got it right, by the way. I'm very impressed. Um, flow is when you're doing something. It's output, like you're programming, and you're doing something challenging, mm -hmm. and you're solving a problem, and you start programming, and three hours go by, and you go, wow, I just missed lunch. And we've all, I hope, I mean, uh, it's a privilege to have been through that. Many of us have been through that. I'm writing a paper, or I'm coding, or something. Input is different, though. Input is teachers in total flow mode, and the student's completely lost. You want to g give enough to the students that they get into the flow and doing stuff with the, with the material they learned, and they get into a flow with it, and it's joyous, and then you want to give them more stuff, and that's what we do with 007. We give them these little flow experiences. They struggle with it, so it's desirable difficulties, and then they master it, and then they enjoy it. Right. right? Right. It's like learning to do moguls, you know, when you ski, you know, so. <laughs> Something clicks. Yeah. It hasn't for me yet. <laughs> Sheik Semmihai also, uh, I guess the zone where we don't want to be in is uh, certainly apathy or anxiety. And I think anxiety is the undesirable mode that you're talking about where we're presenting a challenge uh, without perhaps providing any context or putting it in front of a student who doesn't have the required, say, skills to be able to do whatever it is we're putting before them. Yeah, you yeah. know, that's the judgmental side of education. Again, I come back to the model of children. I mean, a parent doesn't want to make their child anxious when they're trying to teach them something. Most parents don't. Sure. You want to make it fun, and you back off, right? Space retrieval, right? And then you come back, which mm -hmm. is, you know, you can see your child's eyes, child roll her eyes in the from the back of your head, but then in the car, right? <laughs> yeah. 
So I don't understand this um, this this bizarre sort of uh, drill sergeant sort of oh we're gonna create anxiety sort of nonsense, right? And we do it all the time. You know, anxiety is a symptom that we sort of something's gone wrong. They got to be having learning and having fun. Now sometimes there'll be things that they don't get, and you're motivated. You know, why do I have to learn to invert a matrix? Well, trust me, and let me show you right away why you need to trust me, because here's what you can do with it. Mm. So just take a leap of faith with me, but I assure you, and this is the key, we're going to apply it. We'll solve some equations, which if you did by the Kramer method, took you half an hour, and if you use matrices, you can, you know, invert a matrix, you can solve in five minutes. And that's beautiful. This is a curiosity piece you wrote about. Yeah, so, you know, I like to say that uh, just as when you're hungry, the mouth generates saliva. The equivalent of hunger in the brain is curiosity. When you're curious, the brain generates a neurotransmitter called dopamine, and the dopaminergic circuit activates learning. And really, if you focus on the curiosity, the rest follows. So if you make people curious and they give them the video, they'll take the lecture from video. In fact, it's better because they can pause, they can rewind, they don't get something. And then the classroom is a studio and a playground. As long as you maintain the studio and playground. You must maintain it. You must tend to it. You must create scaffolding. You must create exercises. This is why 2007 is such a, a beautiful orchestra. Oh, it awesome. Is. Yeah, isn't it? It is. An orchestra? Well, all right. I've mentioned 2007 on a few occasions, and if interested, Alex Slocum talks about its history in a previous episode. It's a class that has had many names and a few numbers, but if I said the robot competition, you'd know what I'm talking about. It was the brainchild of professors David Wilson and Woody Flowers and the program that launched FIRST Robotics and all its worldwide derivatives. It encapsulates MIT's mind and hand philosophy. You use 2007 as an example throughout your book. You, you weave that throughout the entire story and use that as a superlative example of this mind and hand approach. Absolutely. And it's very MIT and it's very chaotic and it's very difficult to do. But we did it, right? And that was even before online. So how do we scale that? Now, 007 uh, is a very unique class. But I do believe that if you take the maker movement around the world today, it's 3D printers are everywhere, you know? Or you can buy a Raspberry Pi or an Arduino for a few bucks. I mean, if students could learn through projects with sure. a lot of scaffolding, make something, you know, make a bird feeder that refills itself, mm -hmm. make a, you know, pipes freeze, make an IoT device that tells you your pipes are frozen and tells you on your cell phone. There's so many problems. If we could give enough instruction for students to do stuff and then give them additional instruction after that and leaven the bread a little bit, right? It would completely change it. Instead, we sit them in a classroom and teach them for like 13 weeks without ever applying it. And mm. we keep telling them, trust me, it's going to be useful. Is it? Yeah, Alex Slocum talked about that. Uh, you mentioned that student trust has been eroded. Yeah, look, that whole thing about uh, we'll give it to you this way, trust us, it's useful. Well, you know, trust but verify, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So students are going, okay, show me. And we go, yeah, no, 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 we'll, you know, when you go work. But by the time they've forgotten it, because it never gelled, right? I think that uh, to Alex's point, um, there is, in fact, a, 
a lowering of the trust barrier that needs to occur between professors and students. Professors have to wade into territory they themselves are uncomfortable with and show students how they deal with it. And that's what 007 did. As opposed to staying in your comfort zone and writing on the student's brain and sort of wagging a finger at them if they didn't remember. By the way, did you know that forgetting is an essential part of learning? Sure. I mean, that's all related it. to spacing. Exactly. Yeah, Space right. retrieval, exactly. On the issue of scaffolding, uh, Professor Mahajan at yeah, Olin. Sanjoy, yeah. Sanjoy commented that uh, reflecting on 007, he was saying, well, wait a minute, this is really too much. I think I read that this was too much scaffolding. This isn't really the learning that we're talking about. So uh, Sanjoy um, and many people, actually, no, he went the other way. A lot of those folks think that, so there's, so there's the hippie extreme, which is, oh, just give them a bunch of stuff, they'll learn. That turns out not to be true either. There's a middle ground. You, want, you, you don't want to be authoritarian and strict. You don't want to be, and to use Sanjoy's words, you know, it's like parenting. You don't want to be an authoritarian parent. You don't want to be a permissive parent. You want to be an authoritative parent. That's his analogy. The problem with pure discovery learning is, oh, here's some stuff, go figure it out, is they learn bad techniques. They're very, it's very inefficient. They may not learn the right tricks, in fact, right? Um, if you drop a, uh, if you crumple a piece of a a paper into a ball and drop it uh, in this room, it won't follow F is equal to MA. It won't accelerate a G because of drag, right? So you're going to draw all the wrong conclusions. So the abstract is important. His point is you want to scaffold and leave enough gaps for discovery that you have those ahas. And the person who, in my view, uh, has really done magical work with this is Ellie Sachs. Ellie's guided discovery stuff, is it, it hits exactly the right note, which is you set up these ahas and you discover stuff, but you're not lost. I think a lot of discovery learning students get lost. You know, it's easier for, especially during the novice period, getting lost can be very inefficient. In graduate studies, we let students right. get lost a lot more. And then it's perhaps required. And it's a lot more apprenticeship. In fact, we want them to wander into territory that no one's explored. But they have the basics. They know enough uh, survival skills in the wilderness. But very young students don't have the survival skills. So total discovery, the other extreme, is probably not a good idea. You want to scaffold just enough and give them enough that that next leap they take, the next leap they take, they're likely to succeed. But if they, get, if they make mistakes, there's no problem. It's a learning experience, right? Sure. So uh, over-scaffolding is bad. Under-scaffolding is bad, particularly for a novice. For grad studies, we want our students to, they have the survival skills, we want them to get lost. Right. At that point, they're already the, they've done the line cook and the sous chef. That's right. We're asking them to be the head chef. That's right. But they already know about the ingredients, the technique, the tools. Yeah, and they know not to burn themselves or cut their fingers with their knives, sure. right? I mean, so, that's a challenge I think we have for 007 is we're asking them to synthesize something, but they don't yet know what the ingredients are or how to use them. That's right. That's why I think uh, 007, that's why I use it as an example, scaffolds them through it, right? Because we use, there's a, it's, like a, it's like a greyhound race, right? There's a, there's a mechanical rabbit, right? <laughs> and so we use that to sort of keep everyone going. Mm -hmm. And then we introduce enough scaffolding that and enough coaching. I mean, it's a, it's a big effort, right? To make sure that they learn to use the machine right and they learn to think about it right. And is, and so yes, they go through the sous chef and the you know the other stages sort of efficiently. And then we say, go cook up something amazing, and that's grad school. 
On, on the pandemic, I want to talk about this a little bit because I know that with open education and digital learning, it kind of forced upon us remote work. Yeah. What have you learned from that experience that either supports or refutes some of the work you've been doing? Yeah, but a month into the pandemic. So the pandemic started March. Mm. In May, I wrote a, a screed, an article saying, wait, 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 wait. What we're doing here ain't good online learning. Let me explain. Good online education is when you make asynchronous videos. Bad online education, which has neither the benefit of good online education, which is, you know, pause, rewind, go at your speed, nor the humanity of at least being in person. Bad online education is when you stick people in front of a Zoom lecture. And that's what we, so it's sort of strange. What happened during the pandemic was like the, you know, the, the three little pigs, you know, um, what are the three houses? Straw, wood, and bricks. Brick, yeah. The ones who created asynchronous video, they are the ones with the brick houses. And the big, big bad wolf, which was COVID, it huffed and puffed and couldn't blow the house down because they flourished. The ones who didn't prepare at all, and I don't blame them because, you know, there was no reason to, I suppose. They were all maybe getting to it. You know, everyone's got life intervening. I had to go straight to Zoom, and we all paid the consequences. High school students, college students, bleary-eyed. You know, it's tiring because you're trying to read the expressions of 40 students on a, on a Zoom panel. It's, it's exhausting. So my view is that having said that, I think we understood the benefits of flexibility. You know, students being able to go back and review a lecture. Life intervenes. Students watch watches the lecture later with another student, and they're like, "What? What did she say there? What did he say there? You know, mm -hmm. what did that mean?" Group activities. So we learned a lot of things from COVID. We also learned, for example, that students love chat because it's more anonymous. Students who never speak up in a class were quite sometimes active on chats. We also learned that recitations are better done at night. You know, so if you're a teacher and you have Kids who go to bed at 8.30, and if you can spare an hour, you know, 8.30 to 9.30, do a recitation with students. They'll love it because that's, the, that's prime time for them rather than 8 a.m. So we learned all these tricks. So we're emerging or we have emerged from COVID. Unfortunately, in some cases, we've recreated the Zoom classroom in our regular classrooms, and that's a tragedy. But in some cases, we have taken these lessons back. MIT wrote a very nice report about it, and we're trying to implement them. I, I hear you, and I, I don't. I have no evidence to suggest any of that is wrong. What I do see is sometimes is on the teaching side, people will rely on the conveniences of electronic content delivery, and it's expeditious, and they miss out on that interaction that's required for the the really special learning. You know, I used to rock climb a long time ago. Uh, I was a very mediocre rock climber. Now, when you rock climb, you have a, a rope to hold you up in mm -hmm. case you fall. And uh, the person who was teaching me rock climbing said, listen, man, that rope is there in case you fall. It's not there to support you all the time. So Because I basically use the, put the rope at, in high tension. Right? <laughs> That's pulling you up. <laughs> yeah, it's pulling you up, right? You can abuse anything. Online is meant to be to play offense on this wonderful thing and achieve student centricity, student joy, great learning. Of course, it can be abused. If you want to phone it in, you can zoom it in, right? You can. Well, you can phone it in live. You can phone it in live. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, of course, that that's absolutely vulnerable to that issue. You can you can use the 
safety rope to help you with rock climbing. It's not supposed to be. Can you extend some of these thoughts to the workplace? Yeah, you know, the workplace is a whole other shebang. I mean, first of all, I will say that uh, learning is now becoming central to the workplace as well, because, I mean, look, you know, I mean, last three months, everything changed with ChatGPT. Entire jobs are changing. New job categories are emerging, right? We're in a very weird thing. So first of all, learning is, in a, is going to be central. It's like the oxygen of the future of work, mm-hmm. right? Now, leaving that aside, uh, I do think we're grappling with a number of things. Um, there is flexibility when you work from home. You save commute time. It's better for the environment, right? Uh, people actually work harder is what we find. But then the in-person, the serendipity that makes some of the magic happen goes away. How do we recreate it? Another big question is we haven't quite figured out how to have some people in a room and some people not and have equal citizenship for all. That's the hybrid meeting. Sure. We haven't figured it out. The best we can do is two owl or one owl camera and speaker, which is actually pretty good, by the way. But it's even the playing field somewhat. It's not the same. How do you do a conference if people are in five different locations? Maybe you just go back to your offices and everyone does a Zoom rather than three people in a room and two people remote. So I think that we're in the early stages of figuring out in a post-COVID era what work means, what creativity means, what teamwork means, what interaction means, what social commitment means. You know, and of course, there are people who sort of, as, a, as we just talked about, dial it in. They're act- actually multitasking. They're doing Amazon shopping as they're in a meeting. I think it's early days, but I will tell you one thing. I would, I would not bet on commercial real estate right now. So you and I arrived here at roughly the same time. Yeah. From Berkeley. Yeah. How do you go from computational geometry to... VP of Hope and Learning. <laughs> I, I came back. It's yeah. like, what happened to Sanjay? <laughs> well, you know, the re, the lab is still here. The la- sure. We're still doing a lot of the same stuff. We're doing, uh, RF, we did RFID. We still do, uh, uh, did machine tools, right? All that stuff. My approach to research has been a little bit like, uh, it's very problem centric. You take on a problem. It's like grabbing a tiger by the tail. And you go where the tiger goes, okay? Tiger goes into the brush, you're going to go in the brush, you get scratched, but you got to hang on. So if you're problem-centric, you just go in different directions. Mm-hmm. The oh, learning thing was different. What happened was that, you know, I'd done my startups, I left MIT, did my startup, came back. I was sort of having a lot of fun, and uh, the provost said, listen, man, you need to grow up and do some sort of service. Was this Marty Schmidt or before? At that time, it was Raphael was a provost, before he became yeah. president, and Raphael Reif, and he said, uh, President Reif, and he said, look, can you lead up this thing we're doing in Singapore? Actually, Philip Khoury, uh, yeah. SOC Provost. So I did that. It was a lot of fun. We, you know, and so I started looking at the science of learning. And I also realized that going back and forth is um, for a bunch of faculty, right? It's disruptive. Why don't we just use online, right? So I wrote a proposal. Meanwhile, edX had been launched. I didn't launch edX. And then this same provost had become president, President Rife, said, would you mind heading up learning? Uh, and that's how I became VP for Open Learning. And uh, meanwhile, the lab continued. So I've always had this sort of mm-hmm. split personality, you know. Uh, and I always kept this office, and the research just continued. So, so I lived two lives, a double life. How about some aha moments? You talk about you talk about your time in Schlumberger. Back yeah. to the book. I'm wondering if you've had any similar kind of aha moments during your time here. Oh, lots, lots. Uh, you know, I, I have, I'm, I'm, I'm really not making this up. Uh, this is an amazing place, you know. I mean, I haven't seen much of you, Danny, but 
uh, we've had so many conversations where all sorts of interesting ideas emerge and connections. So it's almost like a continuous aha, you know? Uh, it's like this morning I was in a call, uh, I was on a Zoom thing with a bunch of my colleagues and like, oh my God, that's a beautiful way to express this, right? Mm. The aha actually is the permanence of the aha, actually. You know, it's a bizarre thing. It's just, it is such a joyous, like a trance-like state where curiosity isn't something that strikes and goes away, but curiosity is a state of being. And I truly believe that I have indulged myself in that sense. So this leads to the question, you're moving away from MIT. Yeah, yeah. How did this come about? So, um, so I've been thinking about education a lot. I'm actually not leaving MIT. I'll be on leave. But I'm really excited, actually. So I'll be on leave from MIT to lead a new, uh, an existing business school, which was only established six years ago. It was established in collaboration with MIT by the Central Bank of Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur. And it's business education. And Southeast Asia, the ASEAN countries, are in a very interesting period right now because of geopolitics uh, and the energy economy, supply chain. So the ASEAN countries, whether it's uh, Malaysia, where I'll be, mm-hmm. uh, Singapore, where I spent a lot of time, mm-hmm. uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, you know, a lot of manufacturing is moved to, Viet- moving to Vietnam. And they're right in between the behemoths, right? China, India, Japan, South Korea, and Australia. So an opportunity came to uh, lead up this business school, Curious Mind, right? I thought, huh, you know, I'm a businessman. I'm not a business scholar. I've written a few papers on business, but I'm an engineering uh, professor. I went there. I was blown away by both the, um, the faculty, the students, the opportunity. Why not? So I'll be back and forth. My family's here. going to stay here. They'll visit. I also have family in India. So it's not as dramatic as it may seem, but I have to say I'm super excited by the opportunities for the Asia School of Business and by all the faculty and the students there. And you're leaving in a few days. I'm leaving in four days. <laughs> I am so glad I got you when I did. <laughs> I told you. I said, let's make Perfect sure. Perfect timing. Yeah, I said, let's set this up before I leave. You know? So you're so, excited by this. I mean, absolutely. you wouldn't be doing it if you weren't. I'm not sort of excitable, you know, I don't think, but I'm pretty excited. I'm pretty sort of positive. You know, so this, this one I'm this one I'm excited about. What's particularly interesting for me in this is it's business education. Uh, as an entrepreneur, as a businessman, that's very interesting to me. And the second thing is, it's also they have a master's of central banking, which is you know with the Fed, like the U.S. Fed or central banks around the world have to deal with monetary policy and things like that. So it'll be it's a very fascinating learning experience. So what's the first thing you do when you get off the plane then? There's so many things, but uh, first of all, the opportunity is huge. So I've got to pick two or three things, right? Whether it's focusing on ASEAN, which is the Asian coalition there, Southeast Asian coalition, building relationships. Uh, I want to meet the faculty. I want to meet the students. I have like I have a roadmap of things I want to do, but I also think that there's an opportunity to introduce more technology, both in the, in the education, but also in the curriculum. FinTech is booming. So there's so many things to do. And um I'm going to start pondering that on the plane ride. All right. So ponder how finance people uh, need a makerspace and who you need to draw from, say, I don't know, in the East Coast to to build up these fantastic maker facilities in Malaysia. Uh, you know, Danny, it's funny. I had, uh, so Alex was... Uh, oh, Alex? Uh, bed, bed, oh, he's beat me to and it. And he said, sent me like 18 texts this morning saying, I want to go out and go, but you guys come. <laughs> I want to, I really want to create some, put some MIT... Uh, <laughs> 
magic dust there. So trust me, you're gonna you're gonna be there, man. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm flying for a Hawaii gig as well as Indonesia and now Malaysia. So this is pretty good. How have you seen MIT evolve over the years, and, and, and where would you like to see the Institute head? It's evolved in many ways. We've become much more, for, it's many good ways. I mean, for example, um, the, uh, we've become more diverse. That is an amazing thing. We've become more diverse also in our fields. Uh, you know, we've become more biology and biotech, and thank God for that. You know, Moderna exists, and Moderna made an impact on the planet, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, expanded physically. We've expanded in our ecosystem. If you just walk around just north of uh, the main campus or just west, northwest of the main campus or northeast of the main campus, you see this explosion of buildings, and that's the ecosystem. That's magical. I see entrepreneurship expanding in different directions. It's not just the hardware startups. It's the tech startups. It's the biotech startups. It's the computer science startups. It's the social uh, startups, right? So there's amazing stuff. And I say social, I don't mean social networking. I mean things about society, societal, through things like Solve and so on. It's all amazing. Uh, I think these are all great, great changes. If you look at the history of MIT, it's about uh, positivism, technology positivism. It's the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. David Mendel, one of our colleagues, gave a talk many years ago at Open Learning. And in that talk, he described to us how the word technology was actually quite new when MIT was established. That's how high-tech we are. In our logo, we have a person with a book and a person with a sledgehammer. A little concerned that we're forgetting the sledgehammer. I really want to make sure the sledgehammer comes back because the doing part is very central to us. And I don't mean doing like machine shops, which of course I love, but also doing like, if you do political science, and actually MIT is very good at that, applying the political science. We do mm-hmm. economics, applying it. You know, that's what J-PAL is, right? Uh, are Nobel laureates in that space because they apply it. But I want to make sure that we don't lose that. And I'm a little concerned that that's easy to forget and easy to lose. Let's not forget the hardware. Let's mm. not forget the impact. because it's The sledgehammer. Easy. The sledgehammer, because it's expensive, it's grungy, it doesn't return your money quite as quickly, but it reshapes the planet. And especially with things like climate change, of course we have to reduce power consumption and be more efficacious in the way we sort of uh, marshal our resources. But I have a feeling technology is going to be part of the mix, and that means building iron. As will policy. Of course policy, right? But technology is going to be part of it. No, certainly policy, absolutely, right? And the policy and the technology are tied, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you, if you can figure out how to electrolyze and create hydrogen more inexpensively, then the policy supports it, and then, you know, there are more fuel cell cars, or if you do electrification, but then you distort the power from disp- non-dispatchable sources like mm-hmm. wind. You know, it's all sort of tied. It's a multidimensional space. And one dimension MIT is very strong in is in its roots, which is the sledgehammer. And I'm a little concerned that... Uh, it's easy to forget that, and I hope we don't. Bring the sledgehammer back. That's my parting message, you know? Let's not forget the sledgehammer. What, what advice would you give our students? I mean, there's so many dimensions to sure. it. But I think the most important thing I would like to take, I would like for our students to take away from MIT is, it's sort of like 2007, which is you have the, the skills, the knowledge, and the license and perhaps even the duty to think big and act. 
don't let society shape you. You have the right and the ability to shape the future. What advice would you like to offer Sally Kornbluth? I think that uh, Sally uh, uh, appears to be, I haven't met uh, the president, but uh, I've seen her speeches. I think that she comes to a great institution. She seems like a wonderful person, very sympathetic, I think, to what MIT needs and what MIT ought to be. And my advice to Sally is to really understand you know, every institution is different. And MIT has a very special ethos. And I think she's doing that already, which is to listen to people and figure out the MIT ethos and just flow the gas pedal in that direction. She has to form a sense of what MIT is, and I think she will. I don't think MIT should be something MIT is not. What MIT to me is a verb. It's a, it's a vector. You, you've got to figure out the direction of the vector and move in that direction. You know this, Danny. I mean, talking to people around MIT, you can figure that, figure that vector out very, very easily. And I think Sally has the, has the leadership to figure it out. But we shouldn't be something else. We are what we are. Albany Street Parking Garage is a splendid MIT structure, nestled between MIT's power plant and two construction sites. Once those projects are complete, I predict the garage's demise. But while the structure still stands and testimony is available, I have to get to the bottom of a campus rumor. So a couple things in closing. Uh, did you back up into Billy's car in Albany Street Garage? I did. How do you know? Yeah, you, you, know, you whacked the guy from Papalardo Lab. Yeah. Oh, really? That was, yeah, that was, was our it? guy. Oh, that was Billy. Oh, okay. He, he said someone left a note on my car. Yeah, that was me. That was you? He said you handled it so well, and he loved that you were so honest about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, it sounded uh, like you felt horrible. I felt terrible. Yeah, I left a note saying, hey, Billy, man, I'm so- I didn't know who it was. Uh, dude, I'm so sorry. Here's my number. Please call me. But yeah, I, you yeah. did. So you cut a check and came clean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, did, I, I wanted that. I did, I, I, he wanted I, to tell you it wasn't enough. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> he said whenever he turns his neck to the side, he's got a pain. <laughs> it's a pity because he wasn't in the car. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> if the car was parked, I, I, I hit it. So I just wanted to thank you for sitting down with me for this and also leave you with a little gift. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Uh, why don't you just go ahead and open it? Open that up. Of course, we wrapped that ourselves, actually. I can tell. <laughs> oh, wow. That's fantastic. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know the crazy thing? So, yeah. So what I got is uh, Darth Vader. <laughs> well, actually, that's not Darth Vader. Look more closely. That's my scanned head, 3D printed and skillfully attached to the action figure. That's uh, Darth Bronstein. Oh, that's Darth Bronstein. <laughs> so th- you might remember. So I, I want you to have that because that's a memento from the theme from 2007 and 2017. 2017, yeah, yeah. So what, one of the one of the competition tasks was to knock over Darth Bronstein. Oh, yeah. So that's actually from that competition table, the one that you wrote about in Grasp. So that is awesome. That. This is going to go on my on my uh, desk at my in, in the new university. Good, good. Okay. I, I figured y- you need more tchotchkes. I do, I do. Thank you, Sanjay, so much. Thanks, man. It's and been lovely. Yeah. Good luck, you know, abroad. Thank and you. make a point of stopping by and keeping in touch. Of course I will. So appreciate it. Thanks to Sanjay Sarma for carving out the time to chat. By the time this episode drops, he'll be on a plane to Malaysia. So congratulations, Sanjay. Good luck and we'll miss you. 
Thanks to Russell, our Indonesian translator, for announcing this month's Lock the Quill Global Challenge winner, and to Professor Evan Zaporin and everyone involved with arts at MIT. And most of all, thank you for listening. The days are getting longer and warmer in our part of the world. Have a great weekend, everybody.